Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They also offer great solutions for restaurants looking to streamline their front of house and increase sales. Millions of diners are already using Yelp, and these products are a great way to capitalize on that network. Head over to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to claim your free page and learn more about these powerful tools for your business. Now here we go. Chefs have been champions of charities since day one, but most were just asked to do the same thing over and over. Here we were saying, dudes, we're doing 4,000 meals a day made of food that would have been discarded. We're training men and women from prison, out of jail, uh, out of drug treatment programs. We're engaging thousands of volunteers. And look at the meals we're producing. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Are you ready to level up? The Pineapple Post has launched, and I'd like for you to be a part of it. It's a newsletter for people like you, people who want to learn and improve. It's delivered every Sunday, and it's packed with stories, videos, and audio content from the brightest minds in our industry. We're covering the latest news, innovations, and trends to inform and inspire the way you do business. When you're serious about your work and you're ready to take it to the next level, the Pineapple Post is here to help. You can sign up at pineapplepost.news. I hope you check it out. You can't talk to Robert Egger without asking yourself one simple question. What have I done with my life? Robert has dedicated his to supporting the hungry, sustainability, and helping those in desperate need of a second chance. He's weaponized food in the fight to end hunger and build community. And today, we discuss his revolutionary ideas around charity and how we as restaurateurs and chefs can play a vital role. I begin this conversation by quoting Robert from a recent interview I read. One of the biggest failures I've seen in my life is my generation's version of success. Look at the restaurant world. The predominant theory is that if you have a successful business, then quick, you need to open another and then another. Look at my friends Tom Colicchio and David Chang. Look at how quickly those empires dissolve. Do you really want four or more restaurants? I look at my friend Catherine Cagle of Cafe Pasquales. She's been operating for 40 years. How many times do you think folks pushed her to open another and then another Pasquales? But she kept it local, supported local growers, honored her team, and stayed small. I think she's the model of success. The pandemic has created an awakening for our industry. What are some of the lessons you've taken away from the collapse of our industry? Oh, well, dude, I mean, you know, it's crazy. Um, You know, again, I think first and foremost, uh, you know, watching how quickly empires crumble um, and, and big name people who you assumed. And I think the average citizen thinks if you have a restaurant, you're rich. Uh, And I think that's, (laughs) that's another kind of our failure is, you know, we've peddled this idea that we're, you know, uh, that that internet fame equals financial success. And I think what we had is is millions of, of restaurateurs, entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs who were just hustling to make payroll. 
Uh, right. And I don't. I think we should be a little bit more honest about how how tenuous at times uh, our grip is. But at the same time, what's cool is I think mayors in particular have come to realize that we're not some abstract little part of the economy. We are the economy. Right. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and you know, seeing seeing the decimation of our industry and seeing it translate to the decimation of so many others and local economies. I think it really highlights the importance that when we start back up, we start back up on firm footing. Yeah. And that's going to take, I believe, almost, a, a, you know, kind of a, a generational approach to uh, what is the relationship between civil government, you know, local towns and the, the job creators, whether they are the hospitality industry, which, again, I think many towns realize now we're not just major sources of employment, payroll taxes uh, and a variety of things like that, but also the nonprofit sector uh, and how much we contribute to the overall health of a town. But I think more than that, though, more than just the money, uh, it's the community. You know, I think people now that they can't go out and can't like just sit in a bar or sit at a cafe or even go to a bakery. has mm-hmm started to make people realize how much that we're more than just food, man. You know, we're the place where people come, go to, to see other people. Well, you haven't seen the squeeze more than you have in independent restaurateurs. Um, and, and when you look at how they've been squeezed, you also look at the nonprofits associated with them. And you see that this has dealt a crushing blow to them as well. What have you seen on the front lines of that? Well, dude, I mean, A, you know, many restaurants and hotels and, hot, and you know, hospitality in general, have been major fundraising partners for the nonprofit sector. So that's one big part. Uh, second, you know, what used to be the people who would help us raise money every year um, have had to lay off their employees. And now their employees are, are adding to the line of people who are standing waiting for food uh, at the food bank or the pantry uh, downtown. And then the overall just, uh, you know, kind of malaise that I think has hit America uh, and I'm sure many other countries. Um, you know, without that sense of connectivity and that place to go, whether it's, uh, you know, and again, for particularly places like Cali or New Mexico, where I live, where, you know, even communities of faith have been hit because they can't open at the level they were. So I think we're starting to realize how adrift we are when we're not connected uh, to community in some way, shape or form. Well, but I also think that it's it's really highlighted an issue that you've known that's existed for a really long time, which is we have the wrong definition of hunger. When, when most people think of hunger, they think of like a shabbily dressed homeless person that sleeps in a box under the freeway. But the definition and the people that suffer from, you know, the deprivation of food, it's far more expansive than that, right? Oh, dude. I mean, you know, again, I think what we've had over the years has been the images are usually associated with pity, which is usually what drives fundraising. And I think what many of us, and of course, too, you have to, I have to acknowledge that I had a better um, business model than many and a, a better fundraising model because we were incorporating food recovery, environmentalism, job training, social enterprise. Uh, there were a lot of aspects that made the different kitchens I've founded or led easier to fund. So I never had to kind of play that game of feel sorry for this person, give me money. But what has done, what that has done though, is you have a generation of people who, um, again, either think it's somebody who's homeless or I think more awkward for many of us is the the idea of childhood hunger as the dominant need. 
And mm-hmm. of course, we do know there's a significant amount of children. They've always been hungry. But uh, I think what you, what we fail to recognize is the number of elders, the number of working people, the parents of those children, who frankly, oftentimes, they're the ones who go without while their kids eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, what was wild, dude, is at least there was school food. You know, there was a way to get kids a, a free or reduced price lunch. There were after school snack programs. There were backpack programs for the weekend. That's all gone now. So, man, this has been the hardest thing I've ever seen in my 62 years, uh, at least in the States. Well, let's go back for a minute, because, you know, I think when people listen to you talk, you don't sound like a nonprofit guy because it's all it's all roses. It's all very ethereal. You've always been no nonsense. You've always been no bullshit. You're a hardworking guy. You could have fought your way to the top of any industry. What inspired you to a life of community service? Well, you know, I ran nightclubs as a young guy. I, I, mm-hmm. I've always wanted to be part of kind of uh, changing the world. Let's just put it that way. You know, as a young kid coming up in the 60s, you know, I was very lucky to be able to see uh, or hear with my own eyes or ears you know, Malcolm X, you know, Sojourner, Sojourner, uh, Barbara Jordan, Shirley Chisholm, uh, Gloria Steinem, Dr. King, Robert Kennedy. So, you know, there was living, breathing giants when I walked, when, when I was a kid. So I really very early decided I wanted to be part of that movement. But I used nightclubs and, and the power of music at first until I discovered somewhat inadvertently after a volunteer experience how the food, the charitable food sector operated. And, um, you know, having come up in the hospitality industry, I was aware of how much food we threw away. So I thought, wow, you know, here's a, if these groups could just get the restaurants, the hotels, the hospitals, the farmers that have food they don't want to throw away, they just don't want to get sued. If mm-hmm. you could provide a health code approved alternative, dude, you could feed millions of people great meals with that food. But the big leap for me was, you know, restaurants had jobs. And I've always been kind of a believer. I, you know, the, some of the people I, I mentioned earlier, you know, they all kind of followed a liberation theology. You know, Dr. King wasn't saying, let's raise money and, and build a better back of the bus. He was saying, fuck the back of the bus. You know, I, that's a that's a really artificial structure. So, again, similarly, I've just taken the same ideas and said, you know, look, I just don't want to feed poor people better food. I want to set. I want to use that food to set a, up a, a model in which men and women who are poor can be part of the solution, and they can find their way out via these kitchens, whether it's DC Kitchen, LA Kitchen, or any of the hundreds of kitchens I've kind of helped by being open source. Well, one of those founding ideologies was that you say that you're in the bravery business, which I absolutely love. Can you talk to me about what that means? Yeah, well, you know, the word, you know, it's been mentioned many times, and believe me, over my career, as both someone who's been a mad advocate for innovation and change within the anti-hunger world, I've also looked at the nonprofit world and challenged the larger sector to innovate. And one of the first things is the way we view ourselves. And so, you know, there's the old saying, no one identifies by what they don't produce. So the idea of nonprofit uh, is such a, a flawed word. But at the same time, I think we actually do create profit, not in the traditional way, but we create incredible social profit in that you can't make money in a town without the nonprofit sector, you know, without communities of faith, arts and culture, healthcare, education, clean air, clean water, nothing works. 
So, you know, A, I wanted to see us own that, but a lot of that takes um, helping people overcome fear. You know, they'd ra- most people would rather think uh, if you're poor, you're lazy. If you're hungry, get a job. You know, if you're in prison, you deserve it. And they want to hold tight to those bigotries as long as they can because it keeps them safe. And so, you know, whether it's helping those men and women overcome those bigotries or whether it's helping people home from prison or out of drug treatment programs to overcome their past, you know, the idea is, is I, I stumbled on that years ago. It's like, wow, you know, I just get to help people become brave enough to imagine something different than what they're used to. So that idea, and I've challenged many colleagues in the nonprofits to really, again, stop and say, you know, we, we must be in the bravery business. We must, we must help our elected leaders, our donors, everybody who comes through our doors, um, you know, see the role they can play and the role and, and the things, the things we can make better if we, you know, kind of chop down these artificial boundaries.com, org, you know, all those things. So again, dude, I appreciate you picking up on that because I think that's one of my favorite kind of things to challenge people about is that idea of, of being in the bravery business. Well, you've also worked to find common ground. We, we live in a country where we can't agree whether global warming exists or not, but you struck a chord. You figured out that everyone could agree that food waste was an issue and making that one of your foundational platforms, you were able to build something really big in DC. Well, dude, you know, again, I'm a white dude in America, very much right time, right place. Um, I did not really recognize the nerve I touched when I started picking up food in the late 1980s. Uh, And that happened to coincide with the beginning of cable news and, you know, a a 24-hour news cycle and this curiosity people had. So we attracted media from day one because we opened up on George Bush Sr.'s inauguration with food donated from, you know, uh, know, a presidential inauguration going to poor people. Mm -hmm. But- I was really excited because, you know, job, no one had ever done, at least to my knowledge, there had never been a culinary program for people who were homeless before. Mm-hmm. And I was very excited about that. But it was funny, man. No one, I mean, every single person that I talked to, I was shocked by how visceral the response uh, of food waste was in America. I said, I didn't realize that I had stumbled across kind of one of these super raw nerves. So A, people instinctively were like excited that there was an alternative to, um, you know, the typical model of throw away that food at the end of the night. And of course, many people were burdened by um, the, the, um, the flawed notion that it was illegal to donate food. And there, there, it didn't take very much to uh, discover that there was no laws other than uh, food service 101, you know, time and temperature, don't leave food out for more than four hours. You know, other than that, there was no real, you know, and in fact, there was actually many things that incentivize a donation of food. But yeah, man, you know, again, what I realized going back to that bravery business or uh, my other kind of business model, which is this idea of the Trojan horse, you know, disguising things that you know people are afraid of. If I can if I can get them to open the metaphorical gates of their brain by disguising a very powerful idea as something innocent, like food waste. Again, once I discovered people were really um, uh, upset about food waste, it's cool. That's my Trojan horse. Now I'm going to start to put 
diabolical ideas up in that belly of that horse so I can get it into their minds while the gates are open. Well, food's something that everyone prioritizes. Everyone can agree that there's value in that. Yeah. And, you know, dude, again, I came along also at this time of the food channel and suddenly the, the beginning of the celebrity chef. And, um, you know, for better or worse, the kind of food culture that has kind of dominated America's uh, almost their social and for many people, their social media life for the past 20 years now. So, you know, I just have been a very deft surfer of, of, of cool. Yeah, well, you have been. And, and it was it was a point I wanted to touch on because something that, that you have brought to the table is, is showmanship and, and I, I would say community service as a performance art. I look at what you've done and, you know, the Obamas have been involved, the Clintons, Jose Andreas, Anthony Bourdain. Where did that idea come from and how did it initially manifest? Dude, I, I love that you get that, you know, that it was <laughs> that I was doing performance art, um, you know, because to me, food is art. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a thousand things. Man. It's history. It's culture. Um, yeah. But again, you know, I, it, it was just very much as these as TV started to pick up on chefs and they originally kind of dug into the kind of traditional models, you know, the Julia Child the kind of, uh, you know, uh, daffy, fun chef. But then the bad boys arrived, you know. And again, we, we it's them from ice. It was a guy's thing for too long. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Anthony was the king of this. Jose, you know, there were a lot of people who were really just, just, just kind of disrupting it at a glorious level. And I think they really appreciated, um, you know, what we were doing. Because, you know, chefs have been champions of charities since day one. But most were just asked to do the same thing over and over. Here we were saying, dudes, we're doing 4,000 meals a day made of food that would have been discarded. We're training men and women from prison, out of jail, uh, uh, out of drug treatment programs. Um, We're engaging thousands of volunteers. And look at the meals we're producing. Check it out. And I think for the average chef, they were like, dude, this is badass as shit. You know, right. this it just spoke to them because it was creative and it was energetic and it was dynamic. And quite often it was very visual. I mean, you know, again, when you're going to big parties the night before and, uh, you know, then you're working the next day chopping up what might have been, you know, a steamship round or, you know, whole salmon or a thousand other, you know, exotic foods. And suddenly you're using that to produce again, really beautiful meals for people who were just struggling. That captured the imagination of, of just about everybody, including presidents. Oh, yeah. Well, and you mentioned Jose. When you guys started working together, you traveled the world. How did how did that global experience inform what you brought to the kitchens that you created in the States? Well, dude, a lot of it is, you know, A, always trying, uh, you know, support the local. Like, again, one of the things I really love about the work of World Central Kitchen is, you know, the typical model had been, uh, let's go to another country where there's been a typhoon. For example, right now, uh, Jose's down in uh, Nicaragua and Honduras. And, you know, one of the first things that we did was say, look, you know, no no disrespect intended, but so many of the big groups come in and they they bring in food from the U.S. And our model was, you know, look, that tamps down the local economy. Mm-hmm. Let's actually buy local food and employ local chefs and kind of help them reboot their restaurants 
So we're getting a threefer. You know, you're getting local local farmers are, are thriving, local restaurants are thriving, and local people get local food. Mm-hmm. And the money never leaves town. You know, it just all gets re, uh, re, you know, reinvested. And that was a pretty rad model. So the same thing, you know, when I went to L.A., the idea was, you know, here's Los Angeles, which, like many American cities, doesn't really have even the remotest construct of how many elders there are who were, you know, in poverty or right on the on the, the, the kind of precipice or those who were coming. And but it's also home to one of the largest concentrations of, uh, you know, free or reduced price, uh, cosmetically imperfect fruits and vegetables, which mm-hmm. is perfect. Because the only way to feed this many elders um, is going to be plant forward, which is meat as part of the meal, not the center of the plate. So it was the perfect place for, I thought, a, a really daring new model uh, that that demanded a lot of work, you know, because we had to obviously move food very quickly because we're dealing with, again, fruits and vegetables. Even if you put it in a fridge, dude, as soon as it's plucked or picked, it's going, you know. Right. And we had, uh, you know, people who had a variety of different barriers. Some might be physical ability. Some might be, you know, uh, uh, their uh, disease, you know, chronic diseases from their lifetime of eating the standard American diet. Uh, or they're just, they're, they're being carnivorous and, and really kind of addicted to that meat construct. So there's a lot of things we were trying to, uh, you know, kind of bake into one beautiful model. And we did a good job, man. For six years, we rocked L.A., um, but again, I mean, I think I was just a little bit, as you well know, man, and I think any restaurateur in the audience knows, um, you know, you can be a little bit too ahead of the curve sometimes. I mean, for, uh, you know, I think you and I both laugh at the idea that if, if 10 years ago we were at a party and somebody came up and said, whispered in your ear and said, hey, man, put all your money in Greek yogurt. You know, we would have <laughs> laughed, you know, but that's the thing. Uh, some Some things hit. Some things miss. I mean, there were probably dozens of people who developed some kind of, you know, yogurt just as good as Chivani. It just added at the right time, you know, right. for everybody. So that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to share ideas now, because the issue that I mentioned earlier, the idea of how many elders in America are going to be um, really unable to pay for the extra year science is going to give them. And that whether, you know, the, the fact that it didn't work in L.A. at the level I want, it doesn't mean the idea won't roar as more and more people realize, hey, man, this is real. And they'll start looking hard for an alternative. And luckily, all that good data is still there. Where does the resilience come from, though? You started the L.A. kitchen in your 50s. I am 41 years old and I am perpetually exhausted. How how do you find the energy and the resilience to, to keep pushing this boulder uphill? Well, dude, you know, again, when you're talking about working with aging, to a certain extent, you want to be, a, you know, an example of somebody who is saying, look, I'm getting older, but dude, I am only getting bolder. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to, um, you know, again, become, uh, you know, complacent or routine or boring. It, to me, that's still the worst offense, you know, uh, given the, lo- the luxurious life that we have in this country. Uh, to be boring, to be sedentary, to be complacent is almost sinful. So, uh, but dude, at the same time, you know, you mentioned a show person's flair. You know, it's like, you know, Keith Richards is still out there rocking. I mean, mm-hmm. same thing. You know, I view what I do is, is a variation of rock and roll. I love that, man. 
You know, it's there are some real rock and roll ideas that you've come up with totally out of left field um, relative to the way the institutions currently work. One of the things I wanted to bring up because I thought it was thought it was a brilliant stroke when I saw it in L.A. You created the Volunteer Bill of Rights. Can you talk about that? Dude, you know, you're you're like my new best friend, man. I, you know, these are, <laughs> these are getting my greatest gift. But no, but dude, we'll see. Think about this. This is kind of a weird way of saying things. But, you know, when I was young, I watched a fascinating food critic in Washington, D.C., named Phyllis Richmond. And she was one of the first women to review restaurants. And, you know, French dudes in particular, and, and French food back then was considered the, you know, zenith didn't like the fact that a woman was reviewing. But what, one of the things Phyllis did is she basically kind of leveled the playing field because it meant she was anonymous, which mm-hmm. meant anytime a woman came into a restaurant, suddenly that woman had power. And I looked at that and I saw how that revolutionized the food industry. And suddenly, instead of French cuisine being the only great food in the world, suddenly people were like, you know, you had, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, Pan-Asian, whether it was, you know, just wherever. It just opened a doorway. But mm-hmm. it be, it's because she kind of empowered consumers. So I took that model and said, you know, the nonprofit sector needs a kick in the pants, you know, and the funders don't want to do it. And, and politicians don't want to do it. But the majority of people who, who fund the sector or volunteer are regular people. What would it be like if not unlike Yelp? They had the ability to say, you know, here's here's the experience I had. So rather than just hope that happens, I figured, well, let's let's show them what it could look like. And, you know, the idea was saying, you know, when you come and spend even a little bit of time at D.C. Kitchen, L.A. Kitchen or any kitchens I've worked at, you have rights. You know, you've given me some of your time. So, A, you have the right to work no matter what your physical limitations. You have the right to be treated with respect and safety. You have the right to talk to any employee here, which was rad. You know, the idea that, hey, man, ask anybody any questions, mm-hmm. um, because in a way that kind of flipped it and made me as the as the CEO um, responsible for making sure that every person on the staff had knowledge and ownership and that they were enthusiastic because I was saying, talk to anybody. You know, yeah. you can talk to me and I'll pitch you a great story. But the real story is when the staff says it too, when it's their story. Um, so that idea though, because I was hoping that would spur a, 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 you know, that more nonprofits would put up a volunteer bill of rights and you'd in effect have an army of, again, dude, 60 million people volunteer a year. Imagine if those 60 million people started saying, as they did to restaurants, you know, where's this food come from? How do you cook it? You know, are you all paying good wages um, to your employees? You know, where do you source your food? If they, if we imagine if that kind of, that kind of carrot and stick. So again, man, but I I appreciate that you dug that because that was seriously, I thought another one of those diabolical Trojan horse things. It was incredible, man. And, you know, I I thought about you a lot, um, you know, through, through the time that we, that we spent together at LA kitchen. Um, And then when the kitchen closed, you came to dinner at the restaurant and, uh, and I said, hey, man, how's it going? And you're like, it's going really well. And, you know, we chit-chatted for a minute. But you had the same enthusiasm and optimism that you did the last time I saw you in the kitchen. And you were one of my first thoughts when we closed the restaurant. Because you're a guy that just takes a long view. 
you know, and, and you see the obstacle as the path and, and you so gracefully go from, from one new beginning to the next. And I, I wanted to possess that, that same grace and that same long-term focus, because just like you figured out a long time ago that your principal objective was to be of service to others, that, that, you know, I would take up the same mantle in my own way, you know, post, you know, the closure of my restaurant. And it just, it it meant the world to me. And I think people need to hear it because now is a time where everybody's going through new beginnings, you know? Yeah, dude. Well, you know, it's, it's never easy. You know, um, I, I had a very, very successful 32 year career. Um, but you know, again, I had to just acknowledge, man, I can't keep wasting money here. This is just not going to make it. Um, and, and so, you know, owning the closure of LA kitchen and again, trying to be graceful, um, but also, uh, you know, proud of the work, you know, honored to have served a community that I loved. Um, it was, it was the hardest gig I ever had to build something, you know, so from scratch, um, and, and then to let it go. And I must admit, dude, um, and I'm sure you and many other uh, people who've had to close at the same moment where you feel like when you acknowledge it, you know, when you put the word out that people are going to say, oh, man, they, you know, they screwed the pooch. They fucked up. Or you just feel like you feel like, you know, you're you're going to be laughed at. Yeah. And I think there isn't anybody who hasn't closed. that hasn't been overwhelmed by the amount of love that comes at them. Um, I was shocked because I thought for sure, man, the, that, you know, people would be like, oh, dude, you hear about Robert Egger? Oh, dude. You know, but the exact opposite. You know, people were like so kind. And so, like I said, man, I was just overwhelmed. And I'm sure, you know, you and Sammy and others, when you all closed, got the same level of love. And it, it really oh, yeah. is affirming and makes you feel like you can just keep moving on. Well, and that brings us to to Santa Fe. I want to quote you again, because I I love this quote. You said, I'm a social chef. It's like a chef who comes to your home and you're embarrassed because you say you have no food. But he looks around and 20 minutes later, he's cooking. I'm that way with a community. To me, a community is one giant pantry that they think is threadbare. There's a lot of work here in in Santa Fe. I, I love that. Can you talk about the evolution to, to going there and your contributions there? Yeah, well, you know, I had to, I had to uh, take a proverbial powder, as they say, and film the war movies. I had to, I had to get out of town, man. I, you know, when LA Kitchen closed, that was, that was, you know, all my chips were on the table. Mm-hmm. So my wife is from New Mexico and, you know, we always dug it. So this seemed like the perfect little place to kind of retreat to. And that's eh, probably the wrong word, but nonetheless, we ended up here. And when COVID hit, uh, the mayor asked uh, if I could be of assistance. So, you know, first and foremost, I'm like, yes, but dude, you have to really get your head around the fact that while you're going to need a lot of traditional pantry kind of food distributed, you know, all other food banks, mm-hmm. there's a morale boost when it comes to a hot meal. I mean, this is what Jose does, you know, with, with World Central Kitchen. It's, it's that sense of somebody cooked a hot meal for you. And that's, that is not better than, it's just, an important addition to traditional meal pro, uh, distribution. So um, I looked around and said, hey, man, you know, the farmers are all about to start, you know, bringing in their spring crops, and yet all of their contracts are gone. So we got that to deal with. You got the restaurants are closing up. Um, but I also looked around, and, you know, I'm always looking for things that have, 
you know, kind of very significant um, opportunities if you look at it. And one of the things I, I, I thought about was there was a community college here. And I've always been mesmerized because years ago I started a thing called Campus Kitchens, which was saying, let's utilize some of the thousands of school-based cafeterias, as well as the students who have to get service hours. Let's see if we can arrange for them to get service hours on campus. Mm-hmm. Well, similarly, when I looked at the local, the Santa Fe Community College, um, it became apparent that they had a culinary program in which it, it had closed down along with the entire school. So I went over and met with the administration and said, you know, if we can figure out a protocol here, could we reopen and serve the community? And what it rapidly evolved into was credit hours for the nursing students who developed the protocol and, and managed the front door so that we could keep a very tight lid on our, on our work environment. It was um, people who ran the local greenhouse at the college got credit hours to turn everything on and start growing things like mad for us to cook with. And we brought in all the culinary students back and they got credit hours for contributing meals uh, to the community. And I turned to Jose and said, hey man, you know, this is a very interesting new model. I think this should be a world central kitchen outpost here um, because not only do we do we need to serve all of the people who are in hospitality, which is the second biggest employer in this state, um, but we also have the Pueblos and uh, they're particularly hard hit. And Jose immediately said, you know, why, why are you even calling me? You should be cooking already. Um, <laughs> so we started uh, and uh, it was a beautiful thing, man. We had, you know, chefs, restaurateurs, um, you know, there's a group called YouthWorks that did all the driving and del- distributing the meals. Uh, and what was really cool was watching how quickly communities made it their own. You know, like I would go out to some of the Pueblos around here in northern New Mexico and very, very quickly, because they still have a matriarchal society, you know, the women had really taken over. So I, I'd pull up with food and they'd pop up a tent. They'd be directing traffic laughing, talking, distributing food. And dude, that, it, it, to, to segue here real quick, suddenly I watched something that had not really been on my radar, which is, you know, here I've produced or been part of teams that have produced well over 50 million meals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that doesn't include World Central Kitchen. And, um, but they still relied on very traditional distribution points you know, uh, homeless shelters, uh, after-school programs. And suddenly, when I came here to New Mexico, um, between going to the Pueblos, but also uh, attending uh, very small-town fiestas, I started seeing people eating side-by-side. You know, rich people, poor people, you know, tweakers, you know, just the the wide spectrum of a small town Mm -hmm. in which instead of being segregated by age or economics, Everybody just sat down side by side. And that really has been kind of this new thing I'm on now, this idea of fighting hunger with community. And how can we use food, not just to feed people standing in line, but kind of adopt almost a stone soup model of how can we use food to really help people be brave enough to see their neighbors again? That's beautiful, man. And and it all stems from this guiding light. I've heard you say it multiple times in the past. This, this relentless pursuit of a, a life well-lived. Yeah, man. Well, you know, most people at the end of their life, man, 
I, I, 99.9% of the people I'm sure just wish they had made a difference in somebody else's life. They left a mark, you know, and sometimes we think it's going to be in a, in a business or in a restaurant, but I, I really, you know, the more, I, and, and that's true. I mean, you really want to be the kind of people who your employees, your customers really admire you and like working with you and for you. But at the same time, that idea of, uh, I was a good friend, you know, I was a good neighbor. You know, I was a good father or, or, or you know, all those things. Uh, and, and I don't think people have as many opportunities as they as they wish they did to be good neighbors or good friends. Um, you know, we like things on each other's Facebook page. But the idea, in fact, it's funny, man, this morning I was going to the store and I called a neighbor and said, hey, man, you know, let's start thinking about the elders in this town we live in. Little town of 300. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, let's I'm going to be buying some extras. Let's let's team up here and see if we can get a, like a whole cooking thing going on. And then we'll spend an hour or two distributing meals around the village to make sure everybody's got something. Um, you know, I think sometimes it, we might look at the, the issue of hunger and think how insurmountable it is. Uh, but I oftentimes think that sometimes one of our greatest metaphorical weapons uh, is, is uh, not being used. And that's the power of community. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and, you know, my hope for our conversation is that people walk away from it feeling inspired to be of service. Can you think of any steps that folks can make to serve their communities? Oh, dude. I mean, you know, actually just the the basic things of identifying some people in your neighborhood who might be a little bit um, old to be driving and saying, hey, I'm going to the store. Can I pick you up some things? Or if you know somebody's got COVID, you know, and it's just like, hey, can I go shop for you or cook for you? You know, um, that real basic thing. Uh, but, you know, my thing is, you know, look around your town. Like, again, dude, you know, one of the things I, I kind of stumbled across here is um, in our village, we have a very small fire department, a little teeny volunteer fire department. But like most fire departments, there's a little kitchen in that fire department. And there's a lot of space inside if the trucks are moved. And it's enough, you know. Most um, people who might be undocumented aren't afraid of fire people. Uh, mm-hmm. Most addicts aren't afraid of fire people. These aren't the cops. These are fire people. You know, they're different. Mm-hmm. So I decided, I looked around, it's like, dang, you know, maybe volunteer fire departments and community colleges are really powerful things that are underutilized. In fact, right now I'm working on uh, uh, an article suggesting that while culinary schools from the CIA all the way down to small community colleges for decades have still focused on, you know, white European cooking, but, and it's still important for anybody who wants to go into the culinary profession and wants to go to a culinary school to get the basic chops down. But I was saying, you know, what we should be thinking about is redesigning curriculum, recognizing that while we've raised a generation doing service, that will ultimately lead to a generation of young chefs who want to be Jose. You know, they're going to look at it when you and I were younger or when I was younger, people wanted to be Emerald, you know, or they wanted to be a TV chef mm-hmm. and they wanted to be fancy chef, the fancy restaurant. And now I think people look at Jose and it's like, that's the kind of chef I want to be. But that means changing the curriculum and starting to teach. How do you become both a community chef and a community leader? when your community needs you the most. Your restaurant might close, but that doesn't mean you still don't have all those skills, all of that knowledge. And here's a way you can keep your role in the community roaring, even when you don't have a restaurant to go to every day. 
here's how you can serve and 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 help your community see the true power of not just community but food. Well, and let's build off that. So it's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any words of encouragement or advice you would like to offer? Yeah, well, again, brothers and sisters, you know, I think it has been revealed that we are essential in every town. And I think that we need to elect a generation of mayors who don't see us just as, as you know, kind of, uh, you know, the people who pay all the taxes and keep the city going, but we're the people who make the city alive. So that's one thing. You got to elect a generation of mayors who really see our industry for what it is. But secondly, we need to reimagine our industry. You know, you were kind uh, in your intro to mention, you know, that idea of what is success. And I think for too long, we've tricked ourselves into the physically unhealthy reality of running four or five restaurants, let alone 10 to 20 or more. You know, and that idea of, you know, my, my friend, Catherine Cagle is struggling, man. She's like everybody, you know, there's no escape the, you know, the COVID thing. But, but again, her model really intrigues me because, you know, again, she, she really just avoided every temptation to get bigger for some flawed construct of success. Her success was, I know my customers. I know who grows the food. I know all my chefs. I know their kids. You know, so it was a radically different thing. But she's done well for herself, you know, and I just would urge us to really reconsider what is what is going to make you happy as somebody in hospitality, not what do your friends think is going to make you happy or not what does Facebook think is success is. You know, what do you think? And just explore that a little bit more. And I think what we'll find is that, that we'll, we'll come back with a lot healthier uh, uh, relationship to our work than we did in the past where. We all know, man, you know, we ran ourselves and our teams ragged. We were way too much, you know, drugs and alcohol, rampant sexism. You know, let's rebuild, but let's rebuild healthy. That's Robert Egger, founder of the LA and DC Kitchens. For more on Robert and his upcoming projects, go to fuckingshitup.net. For reals, that's the name of the website. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, Check out our video content or read our weekly blog. Go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.